Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, a great story, the legend of Black Bart, the poet robber of California gold rush history. There were a thousand stories and legends that came out of the California gold rush, but none so rich as the legend of Black Bart, the man they called the poet robber. I can honestly tell you that his story, which is true as follows, became a legend, along with his name, Black Bart. He certainly wasn't the first or the worst of the criminals that prowled around the edges of the gold and silver camps and towns, and he wasn't the first man to hold up stagecoaches carrying strong boxes with gold, cash, and valuables between the towns that were springing up all through the Sierra Nevada mountains. But Black Bart was a one-of-a-kind bad guy, and here's what set him apart from others. There were lots of stagecoach lines running between the towns and gold camps, but strangely, he only robbed Wells Fargo stages. And he never fired his preferred weapon, a double-barreled 10- or 12-gauge shotgun. Small note, historians are still nitpicky about what gauge it was. He was always polite and never harassed or stole from stage passengers. Over a period of eight years, he robbed 28 stagecoaches, averaging a little over three holdups a year, and made a pile of money, while avoiding getting caught until one small slip-up occurred in 1883, which ended up getting him nailed. His M.O., or modus operandi, was to appear from out of hiding, wearing a flour sack over his head, with holes cut for the eyes, and asking the stage driver to stop and throw down the strong box. Any time you're sitting up on a stage making a clear target of yourself and staring down at the two barrels of a shotgun at close range, you're going to throw down the box. And the guy riding shotgun, if indeed there was one, kept his hands up to live another day as well. And Black Bart was smart enough, most of the time, not to hit the same route twice and not to strike often. So no defense could be prepared for him, like hiring extra security on every route. He also early in his hold-up career, left a poem in the empty strongbox for the posse to find. And, of course, the newspapers ate that up greedily, initially making him out to be a sort of poet Robin Hood. But what really made him a legend in later years was his motive, which no one, not even the Wells Fargo agents who finally arrested him and sent him to San Quentin, knew until decades later. When that motive became known, his story, his legend, if you will, spread like wildfire. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In the story ahead, we'll talk first about his crime spree, then reveal how he was caught and who he really was. His story, before he turned to crime, you will find, was not so different as that of most of the men who traveled to the Sierra Nevada mountains after the gold discovery at Sutter's Mill. Men from all around the world in search of gold and a better life, a better life that gold could provide when and if they found it, and they were willing to risk everything. Picture in your mind the region outside of Sacramento, California. There's Sacramento, lying northeast of San Francisco. You cross the plains until you reach the western slopes of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, which run pretty much north and south for 300 miles along Route 49, past little towns that were once boom towns, with names like Placerville, Sonora, Auburn, Grass Valley, Nevada City, and Coloma, just to name a few. These define the stretch along that western slope 
where most of the early gold diggings took place. However, it wasn't long until the northern California gold fields also popped up, not far from the Oregon border. Every little town had a bank, and every mining camp and business needed to transfer their dust or nuggets to a bank to be assured that their pile would be safe. So there were many dozens of routes and stagecoaches, especially ones that had good reputations, and justifiably were in great demand. Wells Fargo built their reputation as a dependable company here in these stretches, and Black Bart was soon going to be giving them a big black eye. From Sacramento, let your mind's eye wander about 95 miles south and east to the western slope of the Sierra Nevada mountains, between the towns of Sonora and Milton, which are connected by a pretty windy 45-mile path. There is a pass running between two mountain peaks, the first being the 1,736-foot-high mountain called Funk Hill. The second, much smaller mountain, is called Barth Mountain. I can't help but wonder, looking at this topographical map, if Barth Mountain was named as a hat tip to the famous outlaw Black Bart, who began his career in crime there in that remote pass, which is located four miles outside of Copperopolis, California, where you can find one of Black Bart's historical markers today. That was an interesting read, as it indicated that he both began and ended his 28 robbery career in that pass when he slipped up his one and only time. His career in crime began there at what the drivers called Funk Hill on July 26, 1875. Wells Fargo stage driver John Shine, who was later to become a U.S. Marshal and then a California State Senator, reported that, As the stage creaked its way up a long incline, a man appeared wearing a long soiled duster over his clothes, and covering his head was a flour sack with holes that had been cut for eyes and mouth. The man carried a 12-gauge double-barreled shotgun, nothing to mess with at close range, and carried a Henry repeating rifle on a sling over his back. A paragraph from BlackBart.com describes what happened next. A deep voice commanded, Please throw down the box. Bart then said, If he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys. Driver Shine looked around, and protruding from the boulders on the hillside were what appeared to be six rifles. Shine quickly reached beneath his seat and withdrew the Wells Fargo strongbox, a wooden box reinforced with iron bands and padlocked, containing $348, according to Wells Fargo, and tossed it and the mail sacks to the ground. The driver, Shine, warned his passengers, eight women and children and two men, to refrain from doing anything stupid. One of the women travelers threw out her purse in a panic. Black Bart reportedly picked it up, bowed to the lady, and handed it back to her, saying, Madam, I do not wish your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo. With a sweep of his hand, Bart motioned Shine on his way. As Shine drove away, the driver took a quick glance back and saw the man attack the strongbox with a hatchet. Shine drove off some distance and then stopped the stage. Shine's stage had barely gone up the hill when a second coach, driven by Donald McLean of Sonora, started up the hill and came upon the robber hacking away at the treasure box. McLean stopped the stage, and Bart asked him to throw down the express box. McLean, with a double-barreled shotgun pointed at him, said that he did not have an express box. Believing the driver, Bart told him to drive on unmolested. McLean caught up with Shine's stage at the top of the hill, 
the drivers and a couple of male passengers walked back down the road and paused when they saw half a dozen guns leveled at them from what they believed to be outlaws positioned behind boulders. They stood still, and then realized the outlaws were not moving. It was sticks pointed at them from the boulders. Some additional notes? This is the only robbery that Bart carried more than just a shotgun. After the robbery, Bart stopped at a farm asking for directions and sold the Henry rifle to the farmer's wife for $10. One of the two men on the stage was one of the owners, John Olive. The other passenger was a young miner. When Black Bart stopped the stage, the young miner went for his gun, but John Olive grabbed his wrist and forced the gun to the floor. He said to the young miner, Put that damn thing away. Do you want to get us all killed? It's funny how fate works. That could have ended Black Bart's career on the spot and made him just a footnote in history. But instead, he became a legend. And this note? There was a sort of unwritten rule between drivers and robbers that if the driver said there was no treasure box on the stage, the robber would not press the issue. However, if the robber found out later that the driver had lied, the next time the robber caught up to the driver, he would most likely shoot him. On another note, I couldn't resist checking to see if Black Bart's Henry rifle was ever put up for auction, but I couldn't find it. However, according to an announcement in the 2017 Antiques and Arts Weekly, a Henry rifle owned by Agent James B. Hume, who was associated with the capture of Black Bart, was auctioned for $141,450 in Pennsylvania at Morphy's sale. I say Hume was associated with the capture because there was a squabble among agents as to who was going to collect the $300 reward that Wells Fargo had put up. Following the first robbery came the Yuba County robbery on December 28, 1875. It was the San Juan to Marysville stage, driven by Mike Hogan, and this happened about four miles outside of Smartville. Six months later, on June 2, 1876, in Siskiyou County, about four miles north of Cottonwood, Black Bart struck again, at night this time. The driver was A.C. Adams. The fourth robbery came about one year later, August 3, 1877, and this time Black Bart left a poem. This robbery took place in Sonoma County, four miles from Fort Ross. It was the Point Arena to Duncan Mills stage. If you want to cover this ground today, all you have to do is follow the California State Highway 49, often nicknamed the Motherlode Highway which will take you back to the days of the 49ers, the gold rush days. It's 300 miles of beautiful country along the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, the country that inspired so many great short stories from writers like Mark Twain and Bret Hart, stories I enjoy narrating at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Among the two, I like Bret Hart the best, though both were good, just different styles. I did Bret Hart's story Fiddletown recently, and that is one of those little gold rush towns on that stretch. You could spend a week or more up in that country exploring along twisting mountain roads, sheer granite walls, steep drops to swift mountain rivers, ghost towns, old buildings, played-out gold mines, and long-forgotten cemeteries. One of those rivers just mentioned is the Russian River, and there was a stage route along that river. That stretch known as the Point Arena to Duncan's Mills Stretch. On one steep incline, a lone figure suddenly appeared in the middle of the road, wearing a long woolen duster and masked with a flour sack with holes cut for eyes. 
Black Bart pointed a double-barrel shotgun at the driver and said in a deep voice, "'Please throw down the box.' The driver did so. As previously mentioned, there weren't many heroics in those days because the driver was an easy target for guns and was never sure just how many bandits were surrounding the coach. Also, there were usually passengers, men, women, and children, inside. When the posse arrived, all they found was a waybill with this verse of poetry written on it, each line written in a different hand. It read, I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches, but on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of bitches. Signed Black Bart, the P.O. 8, obviously meaning Black Bart, poet. You might be wondering why he called himself Black Bart. There was a reasoning that went with it, and this is the story. He was a literary man. The name Black Bart likely came from an adventure story published in the Sacramento Union just prior to his first holdup. The Case of Summerfield was published by American author William Henry Rhodes under a pseudonym in the early 1870s. The villain of that story, which was The Case of Summerfield, which can be read in full on the Project Gutenberg website, is a stagecoach robber named Black Bart. As for where author Rhodes got the name, well, he may have heard of an historic pirate named Bartholomew Black Bart Roberts, who also inspired Robert Louis Stevenson to include him in his famous adventure, Treasure Island, the uncut version of which you can hear at 1001 Stories for the Road podcast. And yes, I know this is a shameless promotion, but I can't resist the opportunity. Treasure Island was a great story for all ages. I'm getting a pretty good stack of completed stories there now. Oh yes, also, I just started Jack London's White Fang at 1001 Best of Jack London. Make a note, 1001 Stories for the Road and 1001 Best of Jack London. Make a note. By using the name Black Bart, our crook took advantage of an established dime novel bad guy. So the robber Black Bart was already known as someone to be feared. If you were robbed by Black Bart, you didn't argue, you just gave up the loot. At least that was the thinking. And it apparently worked. Some notes from his other holdups. The first one is interesting because in many accounts it is said that the first robbery was the only one in which Black Bart positioned sticks in the brush to look like guns. But this Wells Fargo data from wellsfargohistory.com indicates otherwise. 1870s. December 28, 1875. The stage from North San Juan, Nevada County to Marysville, Yuba County. A newspaper related that it was held up by four men. This, too, had a description of the lone robber and his trademarks. The three other men were in the hills around the stage. The driver saw their, quote, rifles, end quote. When the investigators arrived at the scene, they found the rifles used in the heist were nothing more than sticks wedged in the brush. October 2nd, 1878, in Mendocino County, near Ukiah, Bart was seen picnicking along the roadside before the robbery. Getting a little cocky, perhaps. October 3rd, following day, 1878, in Mendocino County, the stage from Covelo to Ukiah was robbed. Bart walked to the McCreary farm and paid for dinner. 14-year-old Donna McCreary provided the first detailed description of Bart. Grain brown hair, missing two of his front teeth. Deep-set, piercing blue eyes under heavy eyebrows. 
slender hands, and intellectual in conversation, well-flavored with polite jokes. So now the detectives did have a description. June 21, 1879, the stage from Laporte, Plumas County, to Oroville, Butte County. Bart said to the driver, I sure hope you have a lot of gold in that strong box. I'm nearly out of money. In fact, the stage held no Wells Fargo gold or cash. October 25, 1879. An interstate route was robbed when Bart held up the stage from Roseburg, Douglas County, Oregon, to Redding, Shasta County, California, stealing U.S. mail pouches on a Saturday night. October 27, 1879. Another California robbery, the stage from Alturas, Modoc County, to Redding, Shasta County. Special Wells Fargo agent Jim Hume was sure that Bart was the one-eyed ex-Ohioan Frank Fox. Whoops. So it was obvious that by October 27th of 1879, Hume had not yet interviewed the farmer's daughter, who had given such an accurate description of Black Bart when he paid their family for dinner that night. In the 1880s, July 22nd, 1880, in Sonoma County, the stage from Point Arena to Duncan's Mills, by the way, same location as on August 3rd, 1877. Wells Fargo added it to the list when he was captured. September 1, 1880, in Shasta County, the stage from Weaverville to Reading, New French Gulch, where Bart said, Hurry up the hounds, it gets lonesome in the mountains. Cocky again, and indicating that he'd been followed by dogs. September 16, 1880, in Jackson County, Oregon, the stage from Roseburg, Oregon, to Eureka, California. This is the furthest north Bart was known to have robbed. And by the way, I know that a few of our discriminating loyal listeners will be glad to hear me correctly pronouncing Oregon and Nevada. September 23, 1880, in Jackson County, Oregon. The stage from Eureka to Roseburg was robbed, again. By the way, President Rutherford B. Hayes and General William T. Sherman traveled on this stage just three days later. On October 1st, a person, might have been Frank Fox, who closely matched the description of Bart, was arrested at Elk Creek Station and later released. November 20th, 1880, in Siskiyou County, the stage from Reading to Roseburg. This robbery failed because of the noise of an approaching stage or because of a hatchet in the driver's hand. August 31st, 1881, in Siskiyou County, the stage from Roseburg to Eureka, Mail sacks were cut in a T-shape, another BART trademark. October 8, 1881, in Shasta County, the stage from Eureka to Redding. Stage driver Horace Williams asked BART, How much did you make? BART answered, Not very much for the chances I take. October 11, 1881, in Shasta County, the stage from Lakeview to Redding. Agent Hume kept losing BART's trail. December 15, 1881, in Yuba County, near Marysville, which, by the way, claims to be the place where Black Bart changed his given name, became a pharmacist, died there, and was buried in 1914. Story to come. Bart took mailbags and evaded capture due to his swiftness of foot. January 26, 1882, in Mendocino County, the stage from Ukiah to Cloverdale, Again, the posse was on his tracks within the hour, but they lost him after Kelseyville. Remember, they're using dogs now, and he still manages to elude them, 
Not bad for a guy in his mid-fifties. July 13, 1882, in Plumas County. The stage from Laporte to Oroville. This stage was loaded with gold, and George Hackett was armed. Bart lost his derby as he fled the scene when it was determined that the Wells Fargo agent in Laporte had supplied hardware to bolt down the strongbox. Black Bart's derby was traced to him eventually through the laundry mark. I hadn't mentioned the derby, which he wore on top of the flour sack, so consider this the first mention. September 17, 1882, in Shasta County, the stage from Eureka to Redding, a repeat of October 8, 1881. Same stage, place, and driver, but Bart only got a few dollars on that one. June 23, 1883, in Abador County, the stage from Jackson to Lone. And then the final one, November 3, 1883, in Calaveras County, the stage from Sonora to Milton, the one that proved to be Black Bart's undoing, although he escaped with only a hand wound after being shot at at least four times. We'll return with the robbery that produced the second PO8 poem, and then reveal the story of who Black Bart really was his motive for hitting only Wells Fargo stages, and how he was captured right after the sponsor messages. And now back to Black Bart, the Gentleman Robber. We'll back up just a bit to give you the story of the second poem. This occurred on July 25, 1878, as the stage from Quincy to Oroville was slowing to make a difficult turn along the Feather River. Bart stepped out of the bushes and demanded that the strong box be thrown down. His spoils turned out to be $379 in coin, a silver watch, and a diamond ring. When the posse reached the scene, all they found was a poem. I should mention that they never found boot tracks, as Black Bart wrapped his boots in rags to cover his tracks. More than one of Black Bart's cohorts in crime were caught and convicted based on the boot prints they left at the scene of the crime, and Black Bart was no dummy. The poem read, Here I lay me down to sleep, to wait the coming morrow, perhaps success, perhaps defeat, and everlasting sorrow. Let come what will, I'll try it on. My condition can't be worse, and if there's money in that box, tis money in my purse. Again, like the first note, the lines were written in varying hands, and the work signed, Black Bart, P.O. 8. Poet. This robbery prompted California Governor Irwin to post a $300 reward for the capture of the bandit, to which Wells Fargo added another $300. Another $200 was put up by postal authorities, making Bart an $800 prize. But despite all that, the reward was unclaimed for eight years, during which Black Bart seemingly robbed at will. It seemed Black Bart had an uncanny ability to vanish without a trace, showing the ability to traverse mountainous terrain for great distances on foot, and no doubt traversing areas where posses couldn't take their horses. You might be wondering if anyone got a bullet or buckshot into Bart, and he did have a few close calls. As you already know, Bart was not a rampant pillager of Wells Fargo, who had their hands full of robbers in those years. He only robbed stages periodically, sometimes with as much as nine months' time and even a year between robberies. He later stated that he took only what was needed and when it was needed. Most stagecoach drivers were submissive to Bart, seldom defying him with a cross word and obediently tossing down the strong box when ordered to do so. This was not so with hard case George W. Hackett, who, on July 13, 1882, was driving a Wells Fargo stage some nine miles outside of Strawberry, California, 
Bart suddenly darted from behind a boulder and stood in front of the stage, stopping it and leveling his shotgun at Hackett. He politely said, "'Please throw down your strong box.' Hackett was not pleased to do so. He reached for a rifle and fired a shot at the bandit. Bart dashed into the woods and vanished, but received a scalp wound that would leave a permanent scar on the top right side of his forehead. A close one, but it didn't stop him. The lone bandit continued to stop Wells Fargo stages with regularity, always along mountain roads where the driver was compelled to slow down at dangerous curves or steep inclines. It was later estimated that Bart robbed as much as $18,000 from Wells Fargo stages over the course of his career, striking 28 times. By the way, $18,000 then would be worth about a half a million dollars today. He left no clues whatsoever, although he did leave a spare gun after one robbery. He was always extremely courteous to passengers, especially women travelers, refusing to take their jewelry and cash. He made a favorable impression on drivers and passengers alike as a courteous, gentlemanly robber who apparently wanted to avoid a gunfight at all costs. On July 30, 1878, while robbing a stage from La Porte to Oroville, Black Bart added to his legend. Again, a woman traveler attempted to get out of the stage and give up her valuables to Bart. But he stopped her and said, No, lady, don't get out. I never bother the passengers. Keep calm. I'll be through here in a minute and on my way. With that, he took the express box containing $50 in gold and a silver watch and was on his way. Wells Fargo had put some pretty good men on the trail of Black Bart. Marianne Babel, corporate historian for Wells Fargo, writes at wellsfargohistory.com, In 1873, Wells Fargo hired James B. Hume as the company's first chief special agent. As a former sheriff for El Dorado County, California, Hume was an experienced investigator who managed risk for the company until his death in 1904. In one case, in 1871, court testimony showcased Hume's tracking expertise. Two robbers had held up a stagecoach between Marysville, California and Downeyville, California. While approaching the scene of the crime, Hume noticed two sets of boot tracks, one large and one smaller. Hume measured the tracks and noted the distinctive pattern that nails on the soles of the boots made in the dust. At the trial, Hume identified crucial evidence, a matching pair of boots taken from one of the suspects and a German silver coin stolen in the robbery. Hume clinched the case for the prosecution when he revealed that suspect George Rugg was known to have previously robbed a stagecoach in Idaho, but had escaped jail time by informing on his accomplices. This time, Rugg and his accomplice Ephraim White were convicted, and their mugshots added to Hume's book. In 1885, Hume and Thacker published a comprehensive report called The Robber's Record. In it, they recorded details of 347 robberies and attempted robberies on the Wells Fargo treasure shipments transported by stagecoach and train between 1870 and 1884. They also provided detailed descriptions of 205 convicted robbers to aid law enforcement officers. Wells Fargo's response to 14 years of robberies and attempted robberies solidified its reputation for never giving up its pursuit of those who harmed the company or its customers. When a customer's valuables were lost in a robbery, the company repaid the customer's loss. From 1870 to 1884, Wells Fargo spent more than half a million dollars hiring special agents and detectives 
paying rewards, and invested in other crime prevention measures. The 512414 spent on security and protection exceeded the $415,312 lost in robberies during those years. Relentless pursuit and methodical gathering of evidence by the company's special agent force helped achieve a 70% conviction rate for stage and train bandits from 1870 to 1884. It wasn't long after Black Bart's first stage holdup that Wells Fargo chief of detectives became very interested in Black Bart and was spending a lot of time on his case. Writing in the June 1982 issue of American History magazine, John Stanchek pointed out that while Hume was noted as a pioneer in scientific detection, he in this case had to fall back on a detective's first line of information gathering, footwork. So, instead of pounding the pavement, he and his agents were on foot, trooping up and down the California foothills, talking to farmers, examining crime scenes, and measuring distances. By June of 1882, they had a map showing the locations of each of Black Bart's holdups, with the dates of each and a detailed description of Black Bart. He had a deep voice, and witnesses had described him as gentlemanly. He had obviously had some education, as his poetry showed. He had never used his gun. He was kind to stage passengers and even drivers. And he had a huge problem with authority, as his poetic line, fine-haired sons of bitches, seemed to indicate. He was also in a very good physical condition, as he didn't use a horse, and his robberies took place in rough country miles from civilization. His boots were wrapped in cloth and left no prints. All the agents could do was estimate his path of travel away from the crime scene and question any farmers along that way, hoping that someone had seen him with his mask off. It was estimated from his voice and manner that he was in his fifties. As to his physical conditioning, he once robbed two stages 30 miles apart within a 24-hour period, and he got cocky often, including stopping by a local farm to dine with the family, which finally gave Hume a clear description of his face as noted previously. By the fall of 1883, time was running out for the PO-8 Black Bart. With his loot, Bart had invested in several small businesses which brought him a modest income, but he could not resist the urge to go back to robbing stages when money became short. After so many successful robberies, the poet thought his luck would continue forever, but it was not to be. On November 3, 1883, his luck ran out. His last hold-up took place at the site of his first robbery on Funk Hill. Black Bart wore his traditional flour sack mask with two eye holes. Driven by Reason McConnell, the stage had crossed the Reynolds Ferry on the old twisty road from Sonora to Milton. The driver stopped at the ferry to pick up Jimmy Rolleri, the 19-year-old son of the ferry owner. Rolleri had his rifle with him and got off at the bottom of the hill to hunt along the creek and then meet the stage on the other side. When he arrived at the western end, he found that the stage was not there and began walking up the stage road. Near the summit, he saw the stage driver and his team of horses. McConnell told him that as the stage had approached the summit, the masked man had stepped out from behind a rock with a shotgun in his hands. He forced McConnell to unhitch the team and take them over the crest of the hill. Black Bart then tried to remove the strong box from the stage, but it had been bolted to the floor and it took Black Bart some time to remove it. Rolleri and McConnell went over the crest and saw Black Bart backing out of the stage with the strongbox. McConnell grabbed Rolleri's rifle and fired it twice, but missed. 
Bart dropped the box, grabbed his shotgun, and ran for cover. Young Rolary took the rifle and fired as he entered a thicket. Black Bart stumbled as if he'd been hit. Running to the thicket, they found a small, blood-stained bundle of mail that he'd dropped. Black Bart had been wounded in the hand. After running a quarter of a mile, he stopped and wrapped a handkerchief round his hand to control the bleeding. He found a rotten log and stuffed a sack filled with gold amalgam into it, keeping $500 in gold coins in his pockets. He hid the shotgun in a hollow tree, threw everything else away, and fled. In a manuscript written by stage driver McConnell about 20 years after the robbery, he claimed he fired all four shots at Black Bart. The first missed, but he swore the second or third shot hit the robber, and he was sure the fourth did. In truth, the man who called himself Black Bart only had one wound, and that was to his hand. In his hurry to escape, he had left behind several personal items. These included his eyeglasses, some food, and a handkerchief with a laundry mark FXO7. Wells Fargo Detective Hume found these at the scene. Hume and Detective Harry N. Morse soon contacted every laundry in San Francisco to find a match to that laundry mark. After visiting nearly 90 laundries, they traced it to Ferguson and Biggs' California Laundry on Bush Street and learned that the handkerchief belonged to a middle-aged man who lived in a modest boarding house. The detective soon learned that his name was Bowles, B-O-L-E-S, and that he called himself a mining engineer and made frequent business trips that coincided with the Wells Fargo robberies. After initially denying he was Black Bart, Bowles eventually admitted he had robbed several Wells Fargo stages, though he confessed only to crimes committed before 1879. He apparently believed the statute of limitations had expired on those robberies. When booked, he gave his name as T.Z. Spaulding, but police found a Bible, a gift from his wife, inscribed with his real name. The police report said that Bowles was a person of great endurance, exhibited genuine wit under most trying circumstances, and was extremely proper and polite in behavior. Eschews profanity. Wells Fargo only pressed charges on the final robbery. He pled guilty to a single count of robbery. His robberies had heated him $18,000, about half a million dollars in today's value. So it's a surprise he was found living in a very modest boarding house. Maybe he had sent some of it to his wife and kids. History doesn't tell us. Charles E. Bowles was convicted and sentenced to six years in San Quentin prison, but he was released after four years for good behavior in January of 1888. His health had clearly deteriorated due to his time in prison. He had visibly aged, his eyesight was failing, and he had gone deaf in one ear. Reporters swarmed around him when he was released and asked if he was going to rob any more stagecoaches. His answer was, No, gentlemen. And then he smiled and said, I'm through with crime. Bowles never returned to his wife after his release from prison, though he did write to her. In one of the letters, he said he was tired of being shadowed by Wells Fargo, that he felt demoralized and wanted to get away from everybody. In February of 1888, Bowles left the Nevada house and vanished. Hume said Wells Fargo tracked him to the Visalia House Hotel in Visalia. The hotel owner said a man answering the description of Bowles had checked in and then disappeared. The last known sighting of Charles E. Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart, was on February 28, 1888. Then he just vanished into history, like many before him, 
I know I would really like to hear from any of you who have a solid theory as to what happened to Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart, as well as Butch Cassidy's wife, Etta Place, who was known to be living in San Francisco in 1907, but, like Bowles, vanished into thin air after that. We still have a few mysteries to clear up here. Who was Charles E. Bowes? Why did he never use a horse in his holdups? Why did he only rob Wells Fargo stagecoaches when there were many coaches plying those routes? I'll answer one now. He told Agent Hume that he was afraid of horses, so never rode. Whether that was true or not, we'll never know. He knew himself he was in great physical condition, and his escape route included a lot of very unnavigable country, including country that agents couldn't ride their horses across. Here's the story that unfolds. Charles E. Bowles, spelled B-O-W-L-E-S, was born in Norfolk County, England in 1829, the seventh child to John and Maria Bowles. He later changed his name to Bowles, B-O-L-E-S, without the W. At the age of two, he migrated with his parents to Alexandria Township, Jefferson County, in upstate New York. His brother, John Bowles, farmed their homestead of nearly 100 acres, which lay four miles north of Pless's village. Charlie Bowles, as everyone called him, had a common school education but excelled at sports and was probably, for his weight, the best collar and elbow wrestler in Jefferson County. As a small child, he had smallpox, but he was strong enough to overcome it. It was an endurance quality that would serve him well during his gold mining days, during the Civil War, and again during his career as Black Bart. In 1849, at the age of 20, Bowles left the farm seeking adventure, and he and cousin David set out for the gold fields in California, spending a hard winter in either St. Joseph or Independence, Missouri. They arrived in California in early 1850 and started mining at the North Fork of the American River, near Sacramento. Gold mining in the early days was back-breaking work, often with few rewards. Charlie and his cousin mined for only a year before returning home in 1852. But the scent of gold had lured him, and he was constantly thinking of more efficient ways to prospect and mine gold, and soon Charlie insisted on returning to the California gold fields. This time his brother, Robert, accompanied Charlie, along with cousin David, to California. However, tragedy struck on that trip, and both David and Robert were taken ill and died in California soon after their arrival. Charlie continued mining for two more years before returning home, but home didn't appeal to him any longer. He then went to Decatur, Illinois, where he married Mary Elizabeth Johnson in 1854, and they had four children. In 1861, the Civil War broke out, and in 1862, Charlie volunteered to join the Union Army. He enlisted for three years with the 116th Regiment of the Illinois Infantry on August 13, 1862, at Decatur. On July 1, 1863, Charlie was promoted to a first sergeant in Company B, and twice had the opportunity of becoming a lieutenant. On May 26, 1864, at Dallas, Georgia, he received a severe wound in the right side, abdominal region. Considering the conditions of the wound, it is remarkable that he survived. After his recovery, Charlie returned to his unit and fought in the Battle of Atlanta. Charlie served honorably as a soldier during the war and was mustered out as a first sergeant on June 7, 1865. After the war, Charlie returned home and started farming again. But farming was not to his liking, and he became restless. After all the time in the Army and living in the open air, 
along with carrying along memories of the gold fields, Charlie decided he could make more money mining than farming. With his wife's permission, he left his family to look for gold. He went to Montana and located a small mine at which he worked with a miner named Henry Roberts from Missouri. Charlie's mine made use of long toms, which are basically troughs of boards 12 feet long and 8 to 10 inches deep. Covering the end of the tom was a metal sheet with holes in it to let grains of sand and gold pass through. A steady stream of water was the key to that operation. One day, several men tried to buy Charlie out, but he refused, believing that he was better off keeping the mine. That decision was significant to Charlie. The men who had approached him were connected in some way to Wells Fargo, and they let him know that, and they wanted the land that the mine was on. When he refused to sell again, they cut off Charlie's supply of water, and he was forced to abandon the mine. Charlie was understandably very angry, and he wrote about it in letters home. In one letter he said, I am going to take steps. But he never said, what steps? It seems, according to his own letters, it was the forced abandonment of his mine that made Charles Bowles turn on Wells Fargo and make them his target. The last letter Mary Bowles received from Charlie was from Silver Bow, Montana, dated August 25, 1871. In it, he said he'd made his stake, he could take care of his family, and he was about to return home to his wife and children. But somewhere during that time, he turned to robbing stages, which put him in the sights of the law. No doubt, he decided not to return home, knowing he had dishonored himself and his family, should they ever find out. After that, his wife did not hear from him again until after he'd been captured and identified as Black Bart in 1883. All those years, she thought he had died. In a February 2023 article by Shemaya Sutton titled, The Mystery of Black Bart Lives On, she posts a picture of a gravestone titled, Charles Wells, a.k.a. C.E. Bolton, and Black Bart, born as Charles E. Bowles, spelled B-O-L-E-S without the W. They got that one wrong. It was B-O-W-L-E-S, at birth. And the family genealogy, by the way, which I've checked, confirms that, and located in Maryville's Historic Cemetery. If that is true, he lived 26 years after his release from prison, changing his name at least twice. She goes on to say that, In 2016, a book co-authored by two amateur historians made headlines claiming to provide evidence that the infamous 1800s stage robber Black Bart had been buried in the historic Marysville Cemetery. Those authors, Robert E. Jernigan and Wiley Joyner, published Black Bart, The Search is Over in 2015 and its sequel, companion book to Black Bart, The Search is Over, in 2017. Both books allege that Black Bart was buried under the name Charles Wells in 1914 at gravesite number 8743 at the edge of Pauper's Field, Marysville Cemetery. But some Marysville council people are skeptical. One saying, the only way to know for sure is to exhume the remains and run a DNA test that can be easily compared with his known living relatives, and that the Bowles family is quite large. Another newer book titled Gentleman Bandit by the New York Times bestseller John Bossenecker other ideas about Black Bart's fate. So the answer to Black Bart's fate is still up in the air. Black Bart's name and legend survives today. In some areas where Black Bart operated, notably Redwood Valley, California, 
there is a traditional annual Black Bart parade featuring a man dressed as Black Bart, playing him as a stereotypical Old West villain. Also in Redwood Valley, California, the road leading from California State Route 20 to Hell's Delight Canyon is called Black Bart Trail. There is a large rock at the site of Highway 101 on the Ridgewood summit between Redwood Valley and Willits, known by locals as Black Bart Rock. Though it is not the actual rock behind which Black Bart was reputed to have hidden while robbing stagecoaches, that rock having been lost in a series of highway improvements over the years. In Duncan's Mills, California, there is a plaque commemorating Black Bart and featuring his first poem. In Oroville, there is a road named Black Bart Road, as well as a stone mortar monument with a description of a robbery that took place at the scene. In South Lake Tahoe, California, there's a Black Bart Avenue off of Pioneer Trail, commemorating his poems. In San Andreas, California, there's an inn named for him, the Black Bart Inn. Maybe it's time you took a trip to the Sierra Nevadas to immerse yourselves in some Old West history. I'll give you some ideas, which can be found at www.highway49.org, as well as other websites. Driving Directions To drive the full route, north to south, Start on Highway 49 in Vinton, California, and follow it to Oakhurst, California, the end of the highway, which is about 300 miles. I'm going to do this myself one of these days. I'll be driving a silver Bronco with Virginia plates, so I won't be hard to find. Like mementos on a charm bracelet, the jewels of the 49er Gold Rush are linked by the Golden Chain Highway. Some of those charms include the Empire Mine State Historic Park in Grass Valley, which was the richest hard rock mine in California during its mining history of 106 years. They mined it up till 1956. From 1850 to its closing, it produced 5.8 million ounces of gold. These 5.8 million ounces of gold would fill a box 7 feet on each side. It is estimated that this represented only 20% of the available gold, and that 80% still remains. Coloma is the site where the cry, Metal! That looks like gold! was shouted out in 1848, sparking the gold rush. It's the home of the Marshall Gold Discovery State Historic Park. Exhibits in the Gold Discovery Museum there tell the story of John Sutter and James Marshall, and how drastically the simple act of noticing a small fleck of gold would alter the lives of hundreds of thousands of people from that day to the present. Then there's the Argonaut and Kennedy Mines in Jackson, which were two of the highest-yielding gold mines in the state. Prospected in 1860, reorganized in 1886, and continuously run till 1942, the Kennedy Gold Mine produced approximately $34 million in gold, according to the California Department of Conservation. Angel's Camp is situated in one of the richest quartz mining sections of the Motherlode, and is the home of the story the Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, written by Mark Twain, and available at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. The Angels Camp Museum is located directly on top of the main Motherlode gold vein and contains one of the largest, most comprehensive, and diverse collections of artifacts in the Motherlode and Gold Country areas of the Sierra Nevada region. Chili Gulch in Calaveras County is a five-mile gulch that was the richest placer mining section in Calaveras County. It was named by the Chileans who worked it in 1848 and 49. The largest known quartz crystals were recovered from a mine on the south side of Chile Gulch. Columbia State Historic Park is the best preserved of the California Gold Rush towns, seemingly frozen in time. 
It offers a unique blend of museums, displays, town tours, and live theater plays. Near the end of Highway 49 in Mariposa is a beautiful jewel to be found at the California Mining and Mineral Museum. Once there, you'll be amazed at the Freakod Nugget, a rare and beautiful specimen of crystallized gold discovered in the American River in 1864. This spectacular 13.8-pound specimen is the largest remaining intact mass of crystalline gold from 19th century California. And yes, there still is gold in them thar hills. Now all you have to do is find it. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. All we ask is that you share our show with others and take a few minutes to leave us with a kind review. By the way, I started reading the story White Fang at 1001 Best of Jack London and encourage you to listen in. The book is always better than the movie. You know that. 1001 Best of Jack London is my growing collection of Jack London stories, all safe for family listening, as is 99% of what we do here at 1001 Stories Network. Speaking of family, we are doing Swiss Family Robinson at 1001 Greatest Love and Family Stories. A family of mom and dad and three boys aged 7 through 14 survive a shipwreck and land on a deserted island where they use their common sense, courage, faith, and cleverness to survive. It's a great story, inspired by Robinson Crusoe. Only in this story, it's a family. My goal for the remainder of this year, 2023, is to ask each and every one of you, if you enjoy our show, 1001 Heroes, to please help someone to download one or more of our podcasts. If each one of you do that, we'll grow in size like never before. And all we're asking is that you share us in that way. Thanks for joining us today. Many more legends, histories, and mysteries to come. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon with a brand new episode.